Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. And, of course, read us over at IndieCornrows.com. Uh, we always have stuff coming out, keeping up with the news, analyzing everything that's going on. We're in a little bit of a doldrum right now uh, with, I believe, 45 days until the opening of preseason, uh, just over 30 days until uh, camp opens, which is kind of insane to say. Uh, I'm really psyched to be joined by a good friend and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? I can't complain. It's uh, We're going through a really nice wave of humidity. And by nice, I mean not nice. Uh, I am not a big fan of humidity. Uh, but we're dealing with the humidity in the Midwest. Uh, but it's been a good day. I, I, I've gotten a lot done already. I'm working on some some stuff. Um, writing my first ever article on the WNBA because I've been catching up with it and really enjoying it. Um, just uh, trying to enjoy the off season and, and take time off. And I have not succeeded in the taking time off, but I am enjoying the off season. Um, what all you been up to today? Well, yeah, on the humidity count, I, when I went on my walk yesterday, I thought I was walking inside of a can of pea soup. <laughs> it felt very similar to that. And my hair is not faring well. I don't know if this is a problem that you have, but my hair and humidity, especially anytime I've been in Florida, when it gets like this in Indiana, there's no point in me using a flat iron and straightening it. I have no idea why I did that yesterday, but it was quite curly by the time I got home. <laughs> well, my hair is flatter than Indiana, so I uh, I don't normally have that problem. My issue is just more like I'll I'll put like uh, I mean I put like pomade in my hair because that's what I do. Um, but if I'm outside for like 10 or 15 minutes, it's already like just falling down. Like, nope, not today. We're not, we're not doing anything to keep the moisture out of your hair. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. Much appreciated. I don't know why I pay for hair gel sometimes, but alas, uh, we're here to talk about the Indiana Pacers. Uh, one exciting thing though, you have an update about outshine pop schools for us that I think should be shared with the world because we are waiting for more information, but there, there is an exciting update here. I feel like we need like sirens, like important update, breaking, <laughs> breaking news. Our, ne- our next review on the pod is probably going to be like, I like this pod, but they talk about popsicles way too much. But <laughs> Well, you know what? That's uh, that's on you, bud. Like, I'm sorry. If you've gotten this far into listening to us and you think we just now talk about popsicles too much, that's, uh, yeah. What's, what's our update? So 
after about a month of, as you know, I fumbled the bag. They both sent us direct messages and I got way too excited and recommended new flavors and a lots of other things and partnerships I think that they should consider. They ghosted me and put me on read and for good reason because I was super extra and I understood where they were coming from. Well, lo and behold, last Wednesday, out of nowhere, I get a new direct message that says, send us your address. We want to send you something special. So they're based in California, I believe. And obviously we're here in the Midwest. So nothing has arrived yet. I'll have to provide further update later, but good things are on the horizon. I'm hopeful that a box of popsicles might be headed my way. I am. Uh, I'm very excited for updates. And if you want to feel uh, also in terms of fumbling the bag or just doing something that uh, you know, it was a little bit risky in the moment, uh, just as a, as a fun story. Uh, when I was in Vegas, I went to In-N-Out with a couple of my friends who also cover the league. And I won't, I won't name him on pod, but one of my friends who's a big Milwaukee Bucks fan doesn't cover the Bucks. He covers the G League. Um, we saw Mike Budenholzer in and out. And this man, I, I, I swear to God, got up from eating his in and out went over to Mike Budenholzer's table and shook his hand and said, thank you for winning my state championship. It was one of the most awkward exchanges I think I've ever seen occur in person because uh, Mike was just trying to eat in and out But it was, uh, it was fantastic. So uh, you're not alone in, in, in bag fumbling. Uh, that one was in person too, so it makes it a little bit different. But I respect the boldness. I, I do. I do as well. He did it. And I was like, he's really doing it. Like he just seeing him walking over. It was like in slow-mo. And like, this guy's really going over to Mike Budenholzer in the middle of in and out. And, and he did it and more power to him. It was a, I wish I had that power and ability. I do not. Um, we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, we're going to open up by talking about uh, some closing summer league stuff, uh, things that have come out in terms of, you know, finishing up the roster, looking more at the two-way spots. Um, and that starts with the Pacers signing. Uh, for, he was with the Heat in summer league, formerly a guard out of the University of Houston. That's uh, DeJean Giroux. Uh, he reported by Scott Agnes, got the uh, final two-way spot for the Pacers. Um, and we both have thoughts on this, but I'll start and hand it over to you. What were your thoughts on uh, on the Dijon signing? We'll, we'll get into some more out of that as well. Yeah, I don't know how many games of the Heat you caught when you were out there of the Summer League games. But, I mean, the first one, I think that he had a bit of an injury during the first mm -hmm. half and then didn't come back out and play. But um, obviously has good size for position at six foot five defensively the Miami heat were icing a lot on defense. So it's a little bit harder to translate some of that, but I did have a clip when I did a little bit of a news piece on him, on the potential that they were expected to sign him to the two way contract that he was pretty versatile in being able to switch on to rollers out of the pick and roll veer into them against bigger guys and use that size and length and then carving out space on the glass and being able to bring the ball up. Miami predominantly used him at point guard and really wanted to see if he was going to be able to run and facilitate offense at the other end, like just two fun plays and that same game, like a couple possessions after he switched onto the role, man, he came and really went at uh, that same guy in isolation and showed off some of the, uh, looks like he'd put some work in the lab and been able to create some separation and make a shot. But, and the first game against Denver, which there has to be a caveat because Denver's uh, summer league roster had so many issues due to COVID. They were signing mm -hmm. guys at the last minute, like outside of Bones Highland, and he couldn't even play in the first game that this one was. 
their roster just had to be put together with kind of like tape and glue because of what was going on. But he got Bulbul on an island and, you know, Bulbul's reach on a closeout is like infinite and like made a shot right in his face. So that was kind of fun. But I don't know what you thought of him as a facilitator overall. I was encouraged a couple times because when he was pushing the ball in transition, he made a pass just right in stride in motion. But a lot of the other times when I was watching it, and these players are not remotely similar. I'm only using it on this specific thing. Like when Darren Collison played for the Pacers, one of my main things with him was he would have to abort his dribble at the elbow and then actually pivot into making a pass. And Dijon mm-hmm. does that pretty often. Like he, he has to stop and then find where the open guy is. And he did that well. Like he didn't turn the ball over a lot. He was pretty efficient, but I don't know how that will translate automatically at the next level. And I think putting him on the two way, he was an intriguing mixture of attack and his size and his defense, but that's stuff that he's going to have to iron out if, if they envision him as being a point guard. Yeah. And certainly his shot as well. Like he did make some threes. I think he was like four of 11 on threes at summer league, but only a couple of those were off the catch and that would limit him and his ability to play off ball. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think you hit on a lot of the things that I see with him as well. I think I only saw three of his games at summer league, uh, but I watched a a decent amount of him at Houston uh, during the draft process. Um, I really like him. Like I thought it was actually kind of funny because the heat, had both DeJandro and Marcus Garrett who are like about as as close as you can get to having similar players in the in the draft cycle like both guys who have like they're capable of handling running the offense a little bit fairly athletic in, incredibly good defenders especially for their size but have real questions about their shot um I actually think I like DeJan a little bit better um especially you know in, in terms of looking at roster construction uh because he's got a lot of athletic pop but um He's really more of like a, a combo guard or a wing to me right now with where he's at than a than being close to a point guard. Like obviously he's going to be listed as a point guard, um, but like you mentioned, like he's also not a super adventurous passer, which makes you uh, kind of wonder a little bit. Okay, well, what kind of playmaking growth is there from him? Because I think if you're looking at a guy, and I don't, I don't want to like pigeonhole him, but I think for the most part, if you're looking at a guy who you want to see develop as a playmaker, if they're not somebody who's you know, typically wired to to try riskier things. And it, it's hard to necessarily envision how that's going to improve unless his um, handle just combusts out of nowhere and becomes fantastic. Like, it's not terrible, but it's just um, more of a functional handle like we're talking about with, with looking at, like comparing him to Darren Collison. Like, he's a guy who you can run a little bit of pick and roll with, but it, it's just more so like he, he's probably not going to run the offense for you. Um, I think a lot of what I see with him is, okay, what is, what comes of his shot? Like you mentioned, he's not really a great catch and shoot guy right now. Um, which is, it, it, it's sort of a similar way with, with Karras, except he's not the same, uh, as a, as an author dribble threat either. And it's, uh, kind of like seeing, okay, well, can you develop that part of your game? Uh, can you become a good enough shooter, um, both off the catch and, and maybe doing a little bit of stuff as a pull-up operator to, to warrant running more things. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of figuring out what he's going to be on the offensive end to, to get him opportunities to, to provide what he does defensively and in transition. Um, but I, I really liked it a lot as a two-way spot, honestly. Um, yeah, there's think, upside there. Yeah. There's a lot of real upside there with him. And I would note too, like his shot really did improve every single year. Like he was a pretty, 
eh, shooter his first year when he was at UMass, and then he took a year off. I mean, not took a year off. He had his transfer year uh, when he went to Houston, and he upped his volume and his score, his ability went up a little bit each year. Um, I think his free throw level stayed about the same. He's like around a 70 or 71% career free throw shooter. But, um, yeah, I like the signing quite a bit, and I'm really interested to see what he does with Fort Wayne, especially because – there isn't really a point guard prospect on the on the roster, or a lead ball handler prospect um, on the four wing roster, unless you're. I mean, I guess you could include Dwayne Washington, but I view him a lot more as a two guard than a than a one personally. Um, but yeah, I like this a lot. One question, because I saw some people bringing this up whenever mm-hmm. this got reported, and I have some thoughts, but I'd be interested to hear what yours are. Do you see overlap between him and Edmund Sumner? Yes, definitely. I actually, that was uh, when some, I, I, I can't remember who reached out to me. I think it was Derek Kramer reached out to me and was like, you know, well, could you give me like a small rundown on him? Because he knew that I'd, I'd watched him. And I said, he's kind of like Ed coming out of Xavier's very, very athletic. I don't think he's quite the athlete as, as Ed, but that's not a knock because Ed is just like a 98th percentile athlete. Um, he has ball handling chops. He's not an elite passer and has a lot to work on, on on with the shot. So like, yeah, I agree, especially in terms of like size constraint and what they're probably, you know, ideally doing on the offensive end. I'd say there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. I think, I mean, Sumner really seemed to not only just be hitting threes this year, but I did notice, I mean, I'm not a shot doctor, but I did notice a bit difference in his actual release Yeah, um, that he wasn't letting his guide hand fly off to the side of the ball anymore. He was more keeping his hand, on and under the ball so I think that there is a bit of a difference there at this point in time like just looking Mm -hmm. at who Edmund Sumner is right now versus who Dijon Giroux is since like I guess the trend amongst like talking about this roster is like who's going to replace who (laughs) (laughs) um that Sumner coffee there (laughs) Sumner is like the I don't want to say that the defense is completely comparable either because I feel like Giroux is a guy who I don't feel super comfortable with Sumner switching into like fours. I feel like a couple times when he did that, he gave up some heft and it didn't look and obviously this is summer league, like I'd need to see that against NBA size and strength, but Giroux's switching ability stood out a little bit more. Whereas, like, especially when Edmund was in Fort Wayne, the thing that stood out most to me about him in addition to jumping passing lanes was really his ability to just all out hawk and attack the ball up at the top when he was playing at the point and Mm -hmm. Drew can do that, but I don't think it's identical. And then obviously I think Drew has a, he does have a little bit more playmaking in him than, than Edmund did at this stage. Like Edmund did run some point up in Fort Wayne and Drew to a certain extent, we didn't get to see him make a lot of different types of reads because a lot of times when he was out there, he was like just running pick and pop with Max Struess like a lot. <laughs> so we weren't going to really see him work with a roller as much or, or do some of the other stuff. Not that it didn't happen at all. It just wasn't the same sample size. So I don't think that they're identical, but they are similar archetypes. Like a lot of the stuff that Sumner does is uh, more his strength with like making banana cuts and his reads as a cutter. So it'd be interesting to see how they envision using him with the mad ants. It sounds like, you know, Miami certainly had interest in developing him as a point guard. Like that's what their coach said that like, we wanted him to have as many reps on ball as we could because we want him to continue developing his vision and, and whatnot. So I'm with you. I think it's very interesting and I look forward to watching him with Fort Wayne next year. Yeah, and one last thing I would add too, I actually do think like you could envision those guys playing together at some point because, like you mentioned, I think 
uh, like Ed is much more of a two position guy defensively for me. Like he can obviously roam off ball and do things that like you don't, he can play on a three if you need him to. Um, but I think like you mentioned with Dijon, like he has uh, his base is a lot lower. Cause like Ed is, as athletic and, and good as he is defensively. Like a lot of it is just because he has insane lateral quickness. He has good wingspan, but his hips are pretty high. So like, he's not awesome. Uh, not always awesome defending at the point of the attack, uh, a point of attack and against leg size guys. But with, um, with Dijon, like he has that ability to really get low. And I think his wingspan might actually be bigger than big, bigger than Ed's, which is kind of insane to say, but he's got like massive width uh, on his reach. Um, and like you mentioned, like they, they were pretty comfortable running some switch stuff with him. Uh, and he's going to fill out more too, as, as he, as he grows, uh, I think based on his frame, that would be my guess. Um, but yeah, I agree. I'm excited to see how that plays out. Um, that also turns into, we'll talk about Kiefer Sykes in a minute. Um, but this also comes on, you know, Tom and I talked about this on the last pod, but I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Obviously Cassius Stanley is probably not going to be with the Pacers anymore. Um, his qualifying offer was rescinded uh, just about a week ago um, in the middle of, well, I guess it's more than a week ago now. This this whole last however long is blended together um, and was extended a training camp invite. I have no idea if, if he's going to accept that or not, but um, where are you at with this move? Because I think personally, I, I'll, I'll, before I even say anything, I'll, let, let, I'm wondering what you're thinking. Okay. Cause I don't, I don't fully know what your opinion is, but um at the time when we did our uh, player review pods and I took Cassius Stanley, you'll probably remember that I said that like, I definitely feel for him because my one number was like 300 and whatever, which was the number of days he had played or that were in between when his last game at Duke was versus his first game in the G league bubble. So to go that long without any like steady game action, and then just how hard it was to be a rookie in general last year, you didn't have training camp. There wasn't a summer league. You're just kind of getting thrown into the fire and then there really wasn't going to be playing time for him. So I feel for him on all those fronts, but when I watched him in the G league bubble and I thought it was interesting because I think, I don't know who it was asked Mike Weinar, who was the head coach of the Pacers at summer league that like, what would he need to do to stick? And it was like, you know, he needs to consistently shoot coming off the screens and be showing like consistent effort on defense. And that was the one clip that I showed that like he was in the G league and he had two opportunities to, to take a shot and like was just passive coming off of it and how easy it was at times, even when he got like garbage minutes to forget that he was out there on the floor. Cause he would just kind of blend in and overall in summer league action, up until that last game against the Wizards, which that was kind of a weird game Very. on top of just like Isaiah Thomas deciding to pontificate about oh, Isaiah God, Thomas. But um, like, I, I think my overall take with Cassius is, and maybe this isn't fair, but I don't know what his crystallized skill was that was going to get him minutes. Like, and I don't know what the overall trajectory was going to be. Cause what was interesting, like I was documenting different plays that they were running that were the same as the Mavericks. And when you would watch him run some of those plays versus Kiefer or Duarte or whoever else, even Dwayne Washington at times, like one in particular, they're running angled pick and roll with ball screens on both sides. And the one thing that's interesting about this offense is they can set up in the same alignment, but then it, it can be multiple different things that they're going to run. So it can look one way, but they might run something entirely different. So in this case, they were going to have like dribble off the left side. And that guy was going to leak out through the right, kind of like a horns flare situation. And Cassius is getting weaked to his left hand 
to go over to the side that he needed to go. And he's just completely forcing the action right into the defense with his right and ends up falling down and getting the ball stolen. And I just don't feel like he just seems so uncomfortable still at times when he needed to snake his dribble going left other moments like that, like his handle, like we've mentioned many times is still very underdeveloped. And I don't know that he's a good enough shooter. That's like, yes, he's going to get time as somebody that's a movement shooter coming off of screens, even though I do think he needed to be more aggressive in some of those situations. So in short, I don't know what his crystallized skill was. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, I think the idea is like, I think three and D is one of the most overused things in the world, but like the idea is Cassius is a three and D guy and maybe his help his his handle develops along with that. And he can become somebody who attacks closeouts and grow from there. Um, but the three was like, if you just, and again, you can't take out the wizards game because the wizards game happened, but like removing the wizards game, the shot really wasn't there for him at summer league. And I know it's a small sample size, but well, like, it wasn't in the bubble either. He didn't yeah, shoot the ball well in the bubble. Exactly. And he was, he was passing up a lot of opportunities. He needed a lot of space to get it off. It wasn't coming off of anything dynamic. It was mostly catch and shoot stuff. So he didn't really have that as a as a as a honed in, locked in skill. Um, he, I mean, he obviously had the ability as a vertical athlete, but you can't just run him off of a, a back cut every single play. Um, and the defense was kind of all over all over the place still. Like he has uh, the quickness and some of the size to to really hang with with guards and wings, but. Um, I, I just never really felt like he quite saw the floor super well. Like I, like I, I wouldn't call him a low fuel guy, but it, it, it just kind of reads like he feels very quick and on the court most of the time. Um, so, yeah, I agree. There just was never really anything that he could hang his hat on that would get him consistent minutes. Um, and especially seeing how well some of these guys played, like it definitely was like, okay, I understand. I, I think I actually, I texted somebody, um, Gosh, probably in the middle of the second or third game. And I was like, I think you should accept his qualifying offer now if he wants to be on the team next year because it's – I don't know if he's going to have it by the end of summer league. And, and that ended up being true, unfortunately, for him. Um, but, yeah, I, I think we're definitely in the same spot with where Cassius is at. And I really hope he gets an opportunity somewhere else because I do still believe that he has, like, quite a bit of potential. Um, but it's just putting everything together. And, and uh, part of it's tough, too. Like, again, like we talked about, there's – the I, I wouldn't say like I feel like Fort Wayne did a, a pretty good job of trying to put him in positions, but also like the roster. It's not that the roster was bad or anything, but I think he would really benefit from playing alongside somebody who has more of the lead ball handling ability. Um, like Naz obviously had that a little bit last year, but um, I don't know. I think I, I hope a new environment really benefits him moving forward. Yeah, I mean, they gave him a pretty decent mixture. I mean, I think they were trying to give him reps on ball, but a lot of times when I watched the G League games, he was playing off. And like you say, like they signed Dwayne Washington to a two-way contract, and if you need a guy to hit a shot coming off a screen, he's going to be more reliable at this point in time than Cassius Stanley is. Like, I just – I believe in him more in that type of a role if that's what they're going to see from Cassius. So – I understand where they're going from. I mean, it's it's a little bit hard when you look back and you can look at every draft and do this, but I remember at the time, like, Paul Reed was waiting there <laughs> at that spot. Um, he got taken by the Sixers after Cassius Stanley, I believe, and, like, it goes back to what you and I have talked about a lot, especially late there in the second round. Like, I think that you're drafting 
for upside and hoping that you're going to find somebody. But at the same time, like cash just wasn't going to have an opportunity to play last year. Like the roster was loaded with combo guards. He wasn't going to get time in the G league and then be able to come back and play. And, you know, Bjorkern wasn't really finding minutes for him, which I in part like, I'll defend him there because I don't think he looked completely ready in the minutes he was getting to warrant more minutes. Yep. And there were times where it seemed like he was practically being used as a passive aggressive weapon. A couple times he'd play like a minute or two while Aaron holiday continued to sit on the bench. And then that was just kind of awkward. But, um, and the sense of what the roster was last year, you could have seen a pathway where Paul Reed might've got some minutes sitting there as, you know, a four, but it is what it is. Yeah. I agree. Um, so with that, we can move to Kiefer Sykes because he was somebody who um, is looking like I, I don't, I don't want to say has an inside track, but I think that's been some of the reporting. Um, but it, it seems like Kiefer is potentially going to get the last roster spot. Obviously, Keelan Martin still has um, his deal uh, extended is wrong where his uh, his guarantee date got extended out. Um, and Chad Buchanan and Scott spoke up with that with uh, with Scott Agnes in, in a one-on-one article. Uh, they did not mention Kiefer, but they did talk about Keelan a little bit. And it seemed like the organization is still, you know, pondering and thinking through whether or not um, that is going to end up being uh, guaranteed. I, I don't. I don't think the official date for the guarantee got released because it was supposed to be on August seventh, and it got pushed back. But I don't think we ever got a date for it. But um, I, I mean, I was. Pretty pleasantly surprised with Kiefer Sykes as summer league went on. I know uh, some some reporting has been out about the team really wanting to have a third point guard on the roster. And uh, based on what we saw, um, I mean, where are you at with, with how he looked in summer league? And how would you feel if he ended up getting um, the final spot on the on the main team instead of Keegan Martin? Well, let just to back up a little bit, like it was initially reported in the report that said he was going to be on the inside track. The indicator was that he was going to be getting this other two way spot. So I don't really know how all this shakes out. To me, it seems like both things could be possible in the way that you just outlined that they could be Mm -hmm. signing Dijon Giroux to the second two way spot as Scott reported and that they could be seeing Kiefer as a potential third string point guard option on the actual standard roster if they decide to move on from Keelan. Um, to your other question, I think it was after the third game or maybe during the the third game, I tweeted like, you know, since they've declined or withdrawn cash as this qualifying offer, I wonder if, if Kiefer's going to receive consideration for the third string point guard spot because he was on an exhibit 10 or the two-way spot before we knew this about DeJondro because you can convert an exhibit 10 pretty easily into a two-way contract. And there was a lot of pushback. I was very surprised. Like a lot of people were like, I hope not. And I said, well, why? And they're like, well, I can tell because of my eyes. And I was like, well, I think my eyes are telling me a slightly different story because I thought he played pretty well out of the pick and roll. Like he has a pretty wide variety of passes he's capable of making. I will say like a few times they'd run like flare screen, ball screen, which I wrote in the initial article about Rick Carlisle's playbook. And they did run that a couple of times, just making guys defend through a couple of actions where it would have been better to hit Isaiah Jackson with a lob. And he tried to make a bounce pass, or there were a couple where he made a shovel pass where it should have been a chess pass or, you know, whatever. But for the most part, I thought he did pretty well manipulating those sets. And also what you could tell from summer league is, and with the exception of obviously when you have a heliocentric option, like Luca, you're not going to fully, do what I'm about to say, but a lot of times in like the way Rick Carlisle coaches, it's going to be 
team ball from the guard position. So a lot of times both guards are up top and either one of them could be playing off ball or on ball. They're going to use boomerang actions or they're going to use flip actions where, you know, one of them's coming off a screen and the other's getting the ball or the one's handing the other person the ball. And I felt that he and Duarte played off of each other pretty well in that regard and allowing Duarte to get reps in both, uh, both sides in a way that wouldn't have been possible if Kiefer wasn't on the roster. Like, I don't think Cassius would have fulfilled that role as well as Kiefer Sykes did. And just like, I don't like using single game plus minus, And I, I hate myself for what I'm about ready to say, but I mean, Kiefer Sykes plus 22 plus 21 plus 14 plus 27. Like they were very successful in his minutes. And I realize that he's a smaller guard. He's only what? Five eleven, six foot. I think the NBL. Yeah, he's listed at, as six foot, and that is that is generous from. Yeah, and I, I think the NBL had him listed at at five eleven when I was doing my summer league primer. But mm-hmm. a few times when he got caught on a switch, for one, the help coverage was bad, and two, by that last game, they were doing really well scramming him out of those situations, yeah. which most defenses today should be able to do. Like, I'm not going to say there aren't going to be other ways to target him, but let's also be somewhat real about this. There are not going to be a bunch of teams being like, okay, we're going to spend time on our scouting report scheming for how we're going to target a third string point guard who might not even play tonight. Like, in a lot of cases, if Kiefer's the 15th man on this roster, he may not even know if he's going to play tonight. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it might be, you know – oh, Malcolm has a hamstring injury, TJ McConnell's starting, and now all of a sudden Kiefer Sykes is pressed into minutes or, you know, whatever situation might be. Like, there's not going to be a ton of game planning for teams on that. And if you get into a situation where they are game planning for that and like a playoff scenario, you already have bigger problems. Like, that's just kind of the way that I see it. Like, if one of those lead guards is out of out for a playoff uh, playoff series, and you're having to go to your third string point guard for significant minutes, and then he's being targeted for one, I would hope that you would be thinking of ways defensively to cover for that. But also, like again, you're just you already have bigger issues. So also, like I'm pretty sure Rick Carlisle has experience coaching smaller guards, so I don't see that as some unsurmountable problem. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you hit on a lot of great stuff. Like, obviously, if uh, A, if the team makes the playoffs, you're probably not too worried about him playing. Um, and if you are, like you mentioned, that's uh, then you have bigger problems. But um, in the regular season, like, I think we've just gotten to the point, and we've talked about this too, and, and why I think it was so vital for the team to re-sign TJ McConnell. Like, having 48 competent minutes of play where you're not in the negative is so important. And I think Kiefer showed flashes of being a guy who is going to be like somebody who can keep you above water on court. And and like mentioning, like, I think my biggest gripe the first two games in was the team really just didn't have um, a lead ball handler, like uh, for the, for the summer league team. Like um, uh, part of that was a lot of it was trying to, you know, force feed Chris Duarte on ball reps and see what would happen with that. But also you saw like, okay, they really struggled getting O'Shea the ball and and finding ways to get anybody who wasn't Chris the ball. Even getting Chris the ball was difficult in some of the original games unless he was bringing the ball up himself. Like Jordan Bone really struggled to move the ball um, when he was originally starting. And as good as Dwayne was, uh, you know, playing more as the two, he's not awesome as a as a passer. Like he's he's fine, but like he wasn't somebody who's putting a dent in the defense and kicking out. Um and then you insert Kiefer and like, like you're mentioning that really opened a lot up for the offense. And and that's, a, he was a large reason of why they looked a lot better as summer league went on. The offense really slowed down. 
um, or slowed down, I should say, uh, more like the pace. They just were able to find each other a lot better because he was really good running out of pick and roll. His game started to expand every game. Like he was starting to take some stuff off the dribble out of pick and roll. Um, I, I liked some of the open shots he hit. I don't know a ton about him as a shooter, but it looked good from uh, his moments in summer league. And I actually was really impressed with his at-rim craft too. Like, especially for, I think a lot of people would see somebody who's 5'11 or 6 foot and be like, oh, well, he's not going to be a good at-rim finisher. I don't know how it would hold up in the NBA, but like, I really like his, he throws in a lot of hesitations and stutters as he gets to the rim. And he's a pretty good vertical athlete too. Um, so he just, he, he found really good, useful ways to to get his shots up or to, to get uh, things in the flow of the offense without forcing it. Um I'm just really impressed with him. And like you mentioned with the passing, I think he, he it's not doing anything like earth shattering, but he was good at uh, kind of commanding the flow of things, getting the ball moving. Uh, I really liked what he brought. And also defensively too. Um, yes, he is smaller, but also like he's very good at the point of attack. And I thought he navigated screens pretty well um, and was really good playing the passing lanes. Uh, again, like that's even looking at Chris Duarte, like I think that's stuff that's going to be uh, toned down a little bit in the NBA because, you know, you're just playing against better guys. So it's harder to be that aggressive off ball, but they have the instincts. They play really well in that. Um, so, yeah, I, I I really liked what we saw from Kiefer. And that would be pretty uh, – it, it I guess we could talk a little bit about what it would mean if you let, let Keelan go and where you're at with that, but um, because that would appear to be the, the way that that's going to happen if, if the team does end up bringing Kiefer Sykes as the 15th man. You mean you don't want to argue about which one of these is getting the second two-way contract? <laughs> um, uh, Keelan, yeah. I mean, I think that the thing with if they decide ultimately to move on from him and to get Kiefer as the third-string point guard, they have more options moving forward for like versatile wing defenders than they did a year ago. Like now you have Torrey Craig. Now mm. TJ Warren's healthy. Um so in addition to O'Shea Brissett and how he even fits into this situation at this point, and you have Justin. So like there's multiple people that you can play at the four spot now with of course, differing strengths and abilities and what they offer. But I think it's going to be harder for, I mean, and I shouldn't even say harder because Keelan wasn't cracking the rotation regularly last year either, but there's just more ways that Rick Carlisle can split up those guys than what Bjorkren had a year ago. I mean, there was reasons why as, as ridiculous as it seemed that Jeremy Lamb at times was getting pressed into service at the four because he wanted to keep offense on the floor with, you know, making that choice over Jakar Sampson. Like it's not as hard of a decision now to find somebody else that can seemingly replicate some of what Keelan does. Like, I don't know that Tory's necessarily going to be the shooter or defenses are going to perceive him as the sh- same shooter that Keelan Martin is, but uh, there's just more options. So I understand if they want to clear that spot and give it to Kiefer Sykes because they want to have more depth at, at being able to run offense. So that's where I'm at with it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally in agreement. And uh, that is a good transition into talking about Jeremy Lamb. Um you know, via some reporting that's come out, I believe this was in uh, – gosh, correct me if I'm wrong. Was this from J. Michael or Scott Agnes talking more about Jeremy? I think they both have to an extent, yeah, I but I think, say, I think that J. Michael both. recently reported over the weekend that they've tried to find trade partners for Jeremy, which I think most of us assumed was probably the case. Yeah, yeah, and essentially it's come out that, you know, I mean, Jeremy is still on the roster, so there really have not been suitors for um, for Jeremy. Uh 
in terms of looking at, I mean, we've already talked about, you know, how murky the rotation is coming into this year, just because of how many capable players are on the roster, which is not a bad thing, but also like there has to be consolidation at some point, it feels like, um, like where, where does this put, I mean, how does this come out off for you in terms of looking at this? Because Jeremy is obviously on an expiring deal. I think it's $10.4 million. Um, and it's just hard to see a how he's fitting into the rotation in some ways, um, and b just what this means overall because it's you're putting a guy in a weird spot knowing, like, hey, we were trying to trade you for most of the off season and it and it and it fell through. Um, so where are you at with that? Well, I mean, the one part of that is I would say is I'm sure he hasn't been out of the loop on those oh, conversations. Yeah, sure. Like the front office seems very open about wanting to let guys know like, Hey, this is what we're, we're, you know, there's a good chance you could be traded. And part of me probably thinks that Jeremy Lamb isn't opposed to that. I mean, let's remember this guy is entering the last year of his contract. He's coming off of an injury. I'm sure he wants to be in a situation where he can prove himself and mm-hmm. hopefully earn an, another contract. And that's where some of this gets sticky because I, I think that Jay suggested, and I understand where he's coming from with this, that, uh, it might be a situation similar to like Victor a year ago where, you know, in order to drum up his trade value, he may need to play so that teams can see he can be healthy and that he can play given how last season ended after he already had suffered the more serious knee injury the season before with the torn ACL and meniscus and whatever else it was. So that's where it gets, like I said, it gets sticky because are you going to automatically be like, okay, well we need to, for lack of better term, we're going to use Jeremy Lamb as a show pony as the backup two behind Karis Levert and Duarte is just going to be out of the rotation until we can find a trade partner. Like that feels a little awkward to me because if you're going to need Duarte over the back end of the season, he's a rookie. Like I was impressed by what we saw in summer league. I like both of the rookies. I think they both have a lot to offer, but if you're going to need him as a rotation player later on, I would rather he was getting those reps early rather than giving them to Jeremy lamb so that you can find a trade partner for him. Meanwhile, if you don't do that and you start Duarte, like is, and I don't, I don't know this about him. I'm just saying I can understand from my own perspective that if you're Jeremy, you might get a little bit prickly that you're sitting on the bench when you're in a contract year, because there's not going to be anywhere else to play him unless somebody gets hurt. So I think it's a very less than ideal situation. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to use this word in a little bit when we get to the next segment, but it feels a little bit purgatorial. Like, it feels like the start of the season feels a little purgatorial. So, yeah, no, exactly. Um, And that's even without being like doom scroller. Like, it's just kind of true. Like, you're already putting yourself in a weird position by doing this. Um, I mean, I think you can have a little bit of optimism and say, okay, well, you know, Jeremy is uh, going to be. I mean, I, I think we've talked about this before, especially in Jeremy's review. Like, the the way that he was asked to play defense last year was maybe the worst way that you could ask him to play defense uh, in all facets, like asking him to be hyper aggressive off the ball, which he already is in some ways. Um, but even more so uh, like asking him to play the four, doing all these things that would not have been good for him in a regular season, but then doing it on top of a year in which he's coming back from a very difficult injury that clearly uh, hampered him as the year went on. Um I mean, you could have some optimism that maybe he'll look better in a new system. We know what he can bring offensively. Um, and maybe he's just better optimized under Rick Carlisle. But also, like you're saying, then, like, okay, well, 
how do you make that work with both both him and Chris Duarte? And, and how do you make that that work just overall? Because like you, the more that you try and add all these minutes up, it's just like, well, where are they coming from? Uh, there's only 240. I think that's the right number. I might be completely wrong. I think it's is it 240? It's like somewhere in there. But <laughs> um, point being, like, it's just yeah. As, as much as you come up with answers, you come up with the same amount of questions, no matter how how you look at it. And it just feels a little bit like last year in terms of uh, obviously to a little bit of a lesser degree, but just having that question already with Jeremy, like, oh, well, how are we going to make this work? Uh, and it just feels very in limbo, which is not really how you want to go into a go into a brand new season with a new coach um, trying to, to find a way to maximize his roster. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Right, because you make a good point. Like last year's system was going to exaggerate a few of his weaknesses, which it created off-balance defenders, and it a lot of times required longer closeouts. And mm-hmm. I wrote the article about I found really interesting when you could hear Mike Weiner several times during those games yelling that they wanted people higher at the corners, which I've seen a couple coaches I've I've learned quite a bit about that type of defense one who's coached in the Australian league and I think also coached in the Israeli league has talked about the benefits of doing that and that you're shrinking space by playing higher up into the airspace of the ball handlers and impacting the ball when you're not directly guarding it which I think is what was allowing Duarte who obviously at Oregon already showed a lot of how great his instincts are away from the ball but that's what was allowing him to be as aggressive as he was because they're playing everybody above those checks so if you put Jeremy into that situation what that does is you're creating shorter closeouts because you're not playing inward and springing out you're playing up and then the person below you is catching those people if they cut so with what we've said many times about the awkward angles he comes out at closeouts, maybe that doesn't show up quite as much, especially as what it did under in the Bjorkren system of the hyper aggressiveness. And it did not help him to be playing at the four. I don't think he's a particularly good defender regardless, but I did think that his shot showed some signs of improvement. And he talked about in exit interviews that he spent the year rehabbing the ACL injury really working on his shot. And you could see that from at least three point range. So I still think that on another roster, you know, he could be helpful to a contender as somebody Mm -hmm. that can come off as a bench scorer. He's a variable scorer. That's what he is at this point in time in his career. But um, I don't think it's ideal because somebody we didn't even bring up here at this like two spot. And what I kind of alluded to before is, you know, Edmund Sumner and O'Shea both really popped there at the end of last season. And I'm right now looking at these depth charts and being like, where are they in this rotation? Are they in the rotation? I don't know. Like, I, you know, I guess that's in part what uh, training camp is for to evaluate those types of decisions. But this is in part like it's it's not necessarily a problem, but the Pacers are so deep in having rotation caliber players, many of which, uh, while not identical they offer different things at different times. And that kind of makes it even harder because which one of those skills are you picking at 
at which given time. Duarte at this at this point is at least from what he showed in summer league is, is more complete in terms of what he can at least offer on the defensive end versus what we've seen from Jeremy lamb the last two seasons, but it just seems a little less than ideal that you're going to enter the season this way. And you can't completely blame them because you can't force another team to trade something for Jeremy lamb if they don't want to, and they want to see proof of product first. It just, it does feel as Jay put a little bit like the Victor Oladipo situation. I think we all entered last season, I know you and I didn't think that Victor was going to be on the roster for the whole year. It was just a matter of, you know, win rather than if. So that's what it feels like with Jeremy. It's just that you kind of want to start out the year getting your rookies feet wet. If you're seeing him as a long-term part of this rotation or, you know, starting in place of TJ Warren, who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, too. because like, I said this... that tongue-in-cheek just for the listeners. Like, that yeah, wasn't that me was, suggesting that, that, that that's something yeah. that... Um, yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, with it's it's interesting too because like even just looking right now, so like trying to to picture this in my head. So you can say to yourself, all right, well maybe you see Chris Duarte and, and Jeremy could stay on the same, could be on the floor together. All right, well then who else is out there? I think you need a ball handler. Is Malcolm out there? Um, maybe T.J. McConnell's out there. But then okay, then you have T.J. Warren, Demonis, Bonus, and, and Miles Turner. Where are they playing? Like. However you try and throw these ro- these lineups together, it's just like, okay, well, what about the guys who aren't on court? Because that's just so hard to envision. And I think one more of a random aside question I want to ask you. With Duarte, what do you think his ideal position is defending defensively? Because I was talking about this on a stream yesterday with our, our mutual friend, PD Webb. Um, I actually think Chris could be, I don't, it's not perfect, but I think in some ways I like him defending smaller guards a little bit better than defending wings. Um, Like he had some really good moments against Sharif Cooper in the Atlanta game. Um, And I think he's got naturally just a little bit of higher hips. He has a solid wingspan for his size and he moves his feet well enough where I kind of just like being able to put him on a smaller guard uh, if need be, like obviously he's like more. It's more about you want to get as much out of him as an off-ball player because he's such a good roamer. Um, but I think you can envision that a little bit and be like, hey, you know, he's solid playing on smaller guards. Yeah, I think he can do it. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I envision him mostly like, and this is kind of a rudimentary way of of looking at positions. I see him as a two on yeah. both ends of the floor because it it kind of goes back to what the case was with Victor. Exactly what you said. Like Victor could defend the point of attack, but I don't know that I necessarily want him to because that takes away from the other things that he adds. Like, especially if like, and I don't know if they were going with the higher in the gap scheme in summer league, just as like a test case study to see like, how does, how does this play? What sort of things do we give up if we're doing this? Can we handle the back cuts? Can we handle the drifts to the corner? Um, How do we cover it? If that's going to be something that they actually use where they're forcing more of the action into the corners, I think that they need to force more of the action uh, toward the baseline and the sideline, as opposed to what they did last year, funneling everything to the rim. And that wasn't mm-hmm. always a product of the scheme. Some of it was just because of leaky defenders on the perimeter. But uh, I think Duarte is going to fit in better being at the top of the two side or at the top of like a single side bump pick and roll where he can really get in and, and use his anticipation skills in that way. I don't know that, you know, they were switching a lot in summer league, especially when in, in the games where, uh, 
Like Brema just didn't play in the one game randomly. I yeah. never heard if there was like an injury update or something, but Benny Boatwright got hurt there in the first game. And obviously Gogo was never there. So Isaiah was, was playing quite a few minutes at the five. And then they were just like switching everything when he was out there. And some of the switches they were doing, like he did a decent job moving on the perimeter and like 15 feet extended containing some of that. But the way that they executed some of the switches, I don't, necessarily think would have been successful at the next level because they weren't completely fundamental and and protecting against the slip they just weren't playing against opponents who were going to find that passing angle for lack of better words so the thing that I wrote about in the primer where you know Rick Carlisle had kind of mentioned like Duarte really fights on defense and they see him as somebody who could switch across like all these positions and what I mentioned earlier with Dejan Giroux like being able to veer and like fight over and veer into rollers in that way we didn't really get to see Duarte do a ton of that because there wasn't really people putting him in that position but I still question if that's something that he's going to be able to do against NBA level strength so I think ideally he slides in like behind Levert or, you know, maybe in lineups where he can play alongside, you know, Brogdon or Levert on the floor if they do like hybrid units, but that's kind of where I see him defensively. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I I think it's going to be a lot of trying to figure things out um, by playing like, I mean, we, we talked about it a little bit last year and it didn't exactly work out. Uh, on court, but just finding a lot of off-ball stunting and and, and that kind of stuff because, the, frankly, the point of attack defense is still just a big weakness on this team right now. Um, I think it'll be different with TJ back, but, yeah, I think it's just going to be finding more of uh, uh, trying to figure uh, some ways to to contain things without having elite uh, elite stops on the on the on the perimeter. Um, that was a butchered sentence, by God. Um, no, it made perfect sense to me. <laughs> cool. I, it, it took me a lot more words to get there than I was anticipating. But so yeah, um, we we had a, a slight reference to TJ. Um, in J. Michael had an article out in the Indie Star this morning, uh, talking about Isaiah Jackson and Chris Duarte's performances in summer league and, and what that means a little bit moving forward. Uh, and he hit on uh, TJ Warren's upcoming uh extension of eligibility which is not i mean that's he's not going to sign an extension if we're just being completely honest because it's such a small amount of money for what he's going to be capable of making um but mentioned a little bit about chris duarte's uh capability to to maybe slide in and do some of the things tj does um i i wasn't entirely sure uh how to look at this where are you at coming in uh on this because I think it's it's something that is going to be on on the back burner a little bit this season. I hope it gets solved early because um at least I think you and I are both of the same mindset that TJ Warren is a very irreplaceable player on this team and I would like to see the team pay him because I just don't think that I mean we saw how much they missed him this last year. I don't really think you can necessarily replace what he's doing or or, or envision that Duarte is going to replace that um even by the end of his rookie contract like i it's just a hard that's a that's a hard sell for me yeah i mean i don't expect that i'm with you i mean given what he can sign for an extension i don't really understand financially why that would be something that he did unless he was just like you know i've had two foot surgeries in my career my durability Mm -hmm. hasn't been great and i'd rather lock up this money now but I could totally understand why he would bet on himself in that scenario. I think for me, like you said, like they just missed him in so many different ways last year that I would probably 
you know, and I haven't looked into this cap wise to know what it would be, but I, I would rather see a scenario where other moves were made to kind of open up that type of uh, flexibility, like maybe some other type of trade where you're taking back uh, draft picks or an uneven deal. Like, I, I don't know what you would have to do there, but, uh, and that was a stumbling way to say that, but it's just tough for me to see, like, Duarte does do things or showed in summer league that he does have some potential skills that TJ doesn't necessarily have. I've talked about it many times. Like he has one of the lowest assists to usage rates in the NBA. Like I believe that was in the bottom 10th percentile uh, the prior season. And not that he's necessarily been given a lot of opportunities to explore that, but he just doesn't have a lot of playmaking in him where if you make him the top option in an offense and teams really start gearing around him, that he's going to be able to facilitate stuff. Whereas I think that while they did use Duarte on ball, and I don't know how you felt about this at summer league or what you felt about it from Oregon is that he can make passes out of the pick and roll. He was very uh, calm in a lot of those situations. He saw a lot of different types of coverages. He seemed relatively unbothered, but his accuracy as a passer isn't always great. So he's making people have to, you know, take a step over to be in the shooting pocket or whatever it may be. And he wasn't always making himself, well, he made a lot of tough shots against all of that. And that's important. Like being able to rise up against a switch, being able to hit a pull up three against drop coverage reliably, that would open up a lot for the Pacers if they had somebody who can do that, because then you're getting that much more out of Sabonis on the short roll, which I think that between the rim roll, the pick and pop and the short roll, that that's the things that scares defenses most because you're opening up an entire matrix of decisions from the center of the floor. That being said, my overall perspective on this is while again, there was a lot of things I liked about Isaiah Jackson. There was a lot of things I liked about Chris Duarte. I don't really want to start making decisions about who can replace who or what we need to do until I've seen either one of them play an NBA game or even a G league game at this point in time, because it kind of sounds like they think Isaiah Jackson and part because of how much log jam there is at the big positions is going to be playing some at the G league. So I think TJ Warren was greatly missed last year and it would be my hope that they would be able to figure out something for him to stick around long-term, especially if he likes it here in Indiana. But it was a little bit weird to me that it's like transitioned from, and like, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying what the reports have been that like earlier in the summer, and maybe some of this was affected by contract negotiations. I don't know, but it was like reported as he's going to be the team's top option and, and he's going to get paid like one and, he likes it here in Indiana and he's, you know, an under the radar type guy, like doesn't have to be in a big splashy market to now suggesting that like they may need to move TJ Warren and Chris Duarte is going to be able to jump right away into the starting lineup. Um, I, again, I see Duarte a little bit more as a two. I don't know that he does all of the things that, that Warren does because of what I said earlier, like Duarte definitely showed he can make tough shots and that's something TJ Warren does, but he doesn't necessarily make himself the same threat coming off of screens quite yet, but I don't know where you're at. Yeah. I mean, I have two things off that. Like number one, I total concurrence. Like that's definitely not a shot at the reporting or anything. It's just like, it is the reporting and it's like, okay, well what it, 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 it brings questions out about, okay, well, what is the front office thinking here? Like what is, well, I, I'm curious to know what their, their plan is or, or how they're really viewing things because it has felt very mixed message in some ways. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute, but um, it's just with, uh, I think my overall thing with this, and we saw this last year and we've seen it, it feels like every year for the Pacers, especially since, since Paul left or I, I I'd even say since Paul came back from injury, like 
in the NBA, can you ever have enough players who are 6'6 to 6'8 who can dribble pass? I mean, I, I know TJ is not a great passer, but like who can who can play defense, who can shoot and and shoot from distance and create their own shot? No, I don't think you can ever have enough players like that. Um, and I think looking at TJ right now, out of all the guys in the NBA who are who who can defend the three and the four, who can take who can hit threes at a competent rate, and who can create their own shot, he's the only one who is not a a rookie that isn't on a max contract. Um, like that's I think you can. There's maybe sit what six or seven guys who are that size that can do everything TJ can. And that's not me trying to oversell him, but that's just being like realistic. And and again, we like we saw counterpoint last year, like how much you missed him. So I feel like you would want as many of those guys as possible instead of saying, well, hey, we can't pay him. Let's move on. Like, I think that's the kind of guy you have to prioritize keeping on the roster. Um, but, it, you know, I, I guess it, it, just, it all comes down to what the front office really thinks about that. And I, I'm curious to see how that unfolds, because that is a. Uh, Probably going to be a storyline this year as much as we are, are not uh, not excited about that being a storyline this year because we love watching TJ play. Right, and I think you bring up a good point. Like, this isn't me saying that I don't think that Chris Duarte can be a starter at some point. Like, I, I like what I saw from him. It's just that I would rather say both. Like, especially if you think that you're going to downsize or whatever the situation is with the bigs are, like, TJ Warren's pretty key to being able to accomplish that. Like, we saw that last year, there wasn't a good way to downsize with somebody at the four. And while I did bring up earlier, like they do have Tory Craig, they do have Brissett. Those like Brissett does not do much off the dribble. He's basically a spot up and cut guy. And Tory Craig, especially in the final series against the Bucks, the Bucks having had past experience with them, were like, yeah, you know what, go ahead and shoot. Like that's perfectly fine. So I like what all three of them do, but it just feels like TJ Warren is pretty key to being able to do that. And then it would be a situation where it's like, oh, hey, you're going to downsize and then you can play Duarte with Brogdon, Levert, and Warren potentially in certain lineups. So I don't necessarily want to just jump on to the train of like, and I'm just kind of this way in general, I think from the last three years of exhaustion of like debating the bigs of like, who's going to replace who, like, let's just see it first. And I know that front offices have to think far in advance and they have way more information than I do, but I'd rather just watch these people play some NBA games first before I jump into you know, what potential lineup should be one year or two years from now. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, and that is a good transition to our final segment, um, which is speaking more on just some of the mixed messaging overall. Uh, obviously, uh, there was a lot going on during summer league, so it's easy to lose some stuff in translation. Um, while I was in person at games, you sent me a clip from Rick Carlisle uh, during an interview. I believe it was it during the Hawks game. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it was during the Hawks game. It was the Hawks or the Portland game. I think it was the Hawks game. Yeah, yeah, it was the Hawks game. So I remember I was on the far side of the stadium uh, and I remember Rick being on camera. Um, so I just so I don't misquote this, uh, I believe in the I mean, he Rick is being asked by uh, the interviewee or whoever's hosting uh, that game, you know, how he views this roster um, and, and, you know, some of the quote unquote challenges or obstacles to, to building around it. And um, I will transition to you to, to, to mouthpiece that, that part a little bit, because you, I, uh, I'm not sure how to, how to phrase it necessarily. Right. 
And so I think in the lead up to the question, they brought up like, you know, whoever was asking him had said that they had been around Brogdon a lot, like over the scope of Brogdon's career. And then like all the good things that Sabonis does, like they ran down a lot of, a lot of names. And then they had uh, a conversation about, you know, both rookies look really interesting. You know, how are you excited? Like, how are you looking at this roster? Like what you said. And he basically said, and in his defense, there was quite a bit of game noise at the time that made it hard even to kind of hear the question from the TV. So maybe coming through his headset, he couldn't fully understand the nuances of the question. I don't know. But he essentially said, yeah, it's it's an interesting roster. And then. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting roster. You know, um, I like the group. It's a, it's a young veteran group that I think is. Uh, you know, wants to get back in the playoffs and, and, and try to put themselves in a position to win in the playoffs. But this is a very competitive league and it'll be a lot of work. Kind of trailed off and then talked about how, you know, we want to get back to the playoffs, but with the way the East is, like, that's going to be hard. So I don't I don't think we can – I did clip it, but I don't – we probably can't import it because the audio isn't very good, but maybe I can link it in the post when this goes up. Like, And I don't want to read too much into it, but just like from where we were when the season ended, like, I mean, this was when he was hired, this was the quote. It's a team of skilled, unselfish guys that play hard. It's always possible that moves could be made before the season, but I think Kevin Pritchard and I are both very excited about getting the roster healthy and seeing what this team can be. Like at the very, like, again, that's also hedging your bets. Like, you know, there could be changes, but at least like there's a greater degree of enthusiasm there. Like this kind of sounded, and again, I don't want to act like I know what he was thinking, but like, just as an example, which I'm sure many of our listeners are going to be able to relate to. I don't know if you've ever seen this show, but say yes to the dress. (laughs) Yes, of course I have. Okay. So, um, Panina Tournay, the Israeli designer who has her own like collection at Kleinfeld's oftentimes consults at the same time with brides. So there's a particular episode where the bride like wants customizations and she as the designer is standing right there while like the entourage is providing comments on what they think of this dress. And Panina says something like, well, you know, I I could do this. And the mother kind of looks at it and is like, that's interesting. And Panina looks at her and is like, typically when a mom says that's interesting, they mean it isn't. And I'm not saying that Rick Carlisle doesn't think that the roster is interesting or isn't. It just sounded very much like very tentative and hedging bets about committing to naming specific players on this roster and what they can do. Like, it just felt like there's been a somewhat change in tone over the last couple of months. I don't know what you thought when I sent you the clip or what your opinion was. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I feel the same way. Like it, it, it's one thing to to feel a certain way, but at the same time too, like there's a reason why GM speak and PR speak exist because like, if you're going to come out and talk about the roster, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for why, but also just in general, like if you're asked on national television, which that was on national television, I believe it was on NBA TV. Um, like you're just going to say all the positive things and probably leave out the negative. And it's not like Rick said anything negative, but like in some ways by saying some, some neutral things and saying like, Oh, you know, we're not by, by providing uncertainty, it can come off as negative. Um, And in some ways that's how it comes off in watching it. Like, you know, making it sound like things are, or obstacles uh, just kind of brings off an implication that, you're not super content with where the roster is at and combining that with, you know, Scott Agnes had a really great one-on-one 
with Chad Buchanan on his Substack Fieldhouse files. Um, and and Chad, uh, you have the quote directly pulled up, correct? Yes. Okay, so let's... just just as a background, like Scott's question is, and I highly encourage anybody that's listening to this, go subscribe to Scott's full newsletter. Yes, definitely. I'm not going to read all of that because of this. He does have it behind a paywall, but it's relevant to this conversation. So Scott's question is, based on Summer League and your full roster, you have focused on addressing shooting and defense. Is that fair? And how much did you prioritize this that, that this offseason? So he talks about like, yes, that's fair. You know, and then when he gets to the end of his answer, which, you know, this wasn't even really what was asked, he says, quote, he's really studied our team. He studied individuals and their personalities and now figuring out how to make it all work. It may be a different look than what Nate Bjorkren and Nate McMillan used with this group, but he's still trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to put this together? Because it's a unique roster, as you know, with two centers. It's going to test his creativity, I guess. And then in parentheses, it says laughs. So, I, I did share just the end of that quote because in fairness, like there's only so many characters you can share on Twitter. But again, like what you just said with GM speak, I, I don't really know why you would say tack on there. Like, you know, it, the question wasn't how do these two centers fit? But yet that's being brought up because it's a unique roster, as you know, with two centers. It's going to test his creativity, I guess. Like that isn't untrue. I mean, I wrote like different ways that you could use them if that's their plan moving forward. But it's making it sound and I'm not saying this was his intention, but just me and my outsider's perspective. The entire way that this whole two center thing keeps getting discussed makes it if I were them, I would feel like. I'm an obstacle to what the team is trying to accomplish. Like having both of us on this roster is some sort of encumbrance that has to be overcome. And you're just going to continue kicking the can down the road until a better option comes along. Like that's just, and I don't really know where the laughs comes into play. Cause again, I don't know what the tone was or the jovial nature of what was going on in the conversation. I'm just reading it off this page, but to me, like moving forward, I don't know what the offers were in trades. I would think that they were probably, you know, searching under, you know, evaluating every possible option. It could have come to the end of the day, like what we've said before with teams that seem to be interested, like the Knicks, like other ones, like that's not going to make us better. Like we're going to be a better team the way that we are than what the offers were out there. I completely understand that. But at the same time, the word I said earlier before with Jeremy Lamb is this makes me feel like this is a very purgatorial situation. Like you're not going to fully be moving on to what this team needs to be until you finally make a decision about this situation. And it just feels very awkward for both Sabonis and miles. And I'm not saying that they can't handle it as professionals. Clearly they have over the last two years, but I just feel like if, if you're going to want to sell us on the fact that you're running back the same roster, like I would rather it get packaged a lot differently than, well, these two centers that we have that both have disparate skill sets and both do relative, you know, different things very well. It's going to test his creativity, I guess. And then laughs like I, I just don't understand that packaging of it. Like even if they are hedging their bets and they're going to continue, and maybe this is where some of the stuff came in like a month ago where they talked about when you and I were like, you know, no, you're not staggering them either find out a way for your best players to play together or move on. Like maybe some of that was coming from a place of if we play both of them at their natural positions at the five and one comes off the bench, this is going to be an opportunity for other teams to be seeing them playing at the five. And even though one of them's technically getting demoted, they're going to have a better sense of what they could offer at the five. And then we can move on. Like it's just, it's starting to have a somewhat 
last year Victor Oladipo feel where the start of the season is just going to be another, like, like I said, purgatorial period until something pops up or some new player somewhere else becomes available and we can make a change. And that's, that's what you do as a general manager. You're always evaluating that, but to sell fans on being excited about this same situation again, it doesn't necessarily like make me excited when you say it's going to test his creativity, I guess laughs. So where, where are you at with that? Yeah. Um, it feels like throwing rocks at a window and, and hoping it just doesn't break. Like I, 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 uh, it, it's gotten me very frustrated, obviously just from an analyst perspective, like you have to commit to something. Um, and I think maybe in some ways it sounds reductive, but at the same time, like you're mentioning you, it's all well and good to say like, you know, uh, you know, this guy is a professional. He has to deal with this. Like, it, you know, when it was brought up that, that Miles could get moved, like reported that that it had been tossed around the idea of moving Miles to the bench. Like, okay, well, Miles Turner is a quote unquote like top top 60, top 50 player in the NBA, wherever you want to put it. Um, you just can't. It doesn't work that way. Like there's a human element to it where you you can't just say, okay, well, you're gonna play on the bench now yep. because we're we're going to do this. Like that we based on how roster construction, like this isn't 2K. You can't do that. Um I, I think in some ways I understand wanting to uh, to maximize what you have. Obviously, I think that's what they've been trying to do, but it almost feels like they've tried so hard to to make it perfect that they've kind of uh, saying ruined it is is too far. Um, but in some ways, they have tanked the value of guys by being non-committal like this because, frankly, like you know what? Yes. This is uh, a random thing on, 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 on somebody's sub stack, obviously that, that not to sound reductive, like Scott stuff is really great, but like other teams are aware of that. Like this stuff, this is not just between us, like, or between Pacers fans. Like this is around the league. People are aware that, 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 that the Pacers have been tepid about this entire situation and that comes off. And I'm sure that gets utilized in, in, in talking about trades. Um, so when you keep, pushing this farther and farther down like i just don't think that you're going to have a better result come from it um and it just feels to me like um, we're i mean we're not saying anything radical by saying that it feels like a move should have been made last year uh or earlier in this offseason or even farther back and i just i struggle a little bit with uh treating this whole offseason and saying oh well rick, rick carlisle was our big uh, our big get in free agency. Like, yes, Rick Carlisle does push the needle. I think um, we've talked about how that, that does have a real impact on this next season, but you're coming into this year with the exact same mindset. It feels like that you had last year. And I think that was almost the bigger problem than coaching. And uh, I, I just struggle with that. I, I don't know how to feel positive about this. Um as an analyst perspective, like, I, I don't know how to look at it. You know, if I was a fan, I don't know how I'd look at it. Uh, I think I would be a little bit concerned too. If I was a fan, like looking at it, like even the, I think bet MGM finally set the, uh, the betting lines and the Pacers are at 42 and a half, which I think is seventh in the East, if I remember correctly. Um, or no, it was ninth. It was ninth. Um, and I don't really know where to sit on that because you can envision it happening in multiple ways. Um, and less about that, more just like 
there is a lot of uncertainty with this and it feels like the team does really have to finally sell out for something, but I just don't know if we're going to get that. Um, and I find that frustrating personally, because I think that they have in some ways, in some ways, geez, I can't speak in some ways damaged their ability to, to, to sell out in a direction by doing this. Right. And I think that part of the problem is, and I think, it's why people have been, you know, able to hold on to kicking the can down the road is because they are such different players and they do offer such different things. And there's always been like some holdout, like, okay, well, Nate McMillan ran a lot of one dimensional one and done stuff. And what happens when Nate Bjorken comes on, maybe they do something else. Maybe that unlocks some of Miles's offensive ability. And now it's like, okay, well, maybe Rick Carlisle can take the offense even a step further. And maybe, you know, Sabonis isn't being put in the positions defensively that Nate Bjorkman was putting him in. So maybe both of those sides, like, you know, you're not having to lean so much one way or the other, where, you know, you're having to make up for what Nate McMillan wasn't offering on offense. And now you're having to make up for what Nate Bjorkman was actively, you know, being harmful with on defense. And there'll be another look at it. And I'm kind of with you, like, I think that there will be, an, and I don't want this to sound harsh, I think there will be an addition by subtraction effect with Bjorkren being out in addition to just everything that seems to have been going on behind the scenes with what you mentioned, like the human element and the micromanaging and stuff that was going on to going to Rick Carlisle. And obviously Rick Carlisle is very accomplished as a coach, but I think that talent tends to win out in the NBA, like not that coaching doesn't matter at all, but it just feels like overall, like what you're saying that, this is the first time where I felt like, and just, and I don't like basing it off of narratives. I, I use the court as my, my true North. I always use basketball for what, how I assess things and judge things, but it just feels like it's been allowed to fester for too long. Like this is the first time where I felt like this is just kind of gone on long enough. If this is the way that you're publicly willing to refer to it, that, you know, we have, a unique roster with two bigs that's going to test creativity. And again, I don't necessarily think that what they're saying isn't untrue. I mean, just like what Carlisle said at the end of that clip from that summer league game where he referenced, like, you know, we want to get back to the playoffs, but it's going to be hard. Like it is going to be hard. The East is getting better. Like we talked about that in a whole podcast, but if we go back to the point in time when Nate McMillan was replaced and I hate to bring this up, but like there was a press release issued with their playoff record on it. That like, hey, we want to be better in the playoffs and we need to get better in the playoffs. And like last year, there was a lot of reasons from Bjorkren on down to how many injuries they had and just how weird the overall season was and who was in and out of the lineup that they didn't make the playoffs. But now it just kind of feels like, you know, is there a shifting of the goalposts here? Like, are they trying to make it seem like, and maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but like, tampering expectations of hey like this is going to be a challenge and if if our new coach tries it and it doesn't work it's because it was always going to be a challenge like we can't expect him to just automatically fix the inner workings of having these two bigs play together at once but it's like it goes beyond just you know whether you're benching one or the other players and I agree with you there certainly is a human element to it and I would understand if either one of them was displeased with that arrangement it makes sense we talked about that but it's like your best players need to be able to play at the same time otherwise like find a different player who fits what you want to be better and 
I'm not a GM. I don't know what was out there, but it just, it's getting to the point where if you're not going to come and speak to this publicly with more enthusiasm and be like, Hey, we think this is going to work. We're already working up ideas. We think that, you know, and this is another element of it. I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the last like year and a half, anytime they talk about these people, it, it feels tentative in this sense where I can't think of another team that really does this, but it's like, we don't want to provide any pecking order amongst these starters. Like we have a complementary yeah. core and it's like, we don't ever want to lean too far into talking up one or the other because of whatever subtext might be perceived from that. And it just feels like walking on eggshells a little bit in certain respects. Whereas like you watch other teams and it's like, okay, the Knicks signed Julius Randle to an extension and they're talking about how great Julius Randle's an all-star and like, not that they didn't mention in the introductory press conference that like Miles is one of the best rim protectors and Sabonis does all this stuff, but it's like we don't want to make it seem like Sabonis is the best player for a weird reason because you can tell that this situation is unsettled. Like he's he's been a two-time All-Star and whatever people think about that, I know that like I, I hate this word with respect to any player, like acting like anyone is a fraud. He's been a two-time All-Star and he's done a lot of really good things on the floor. You can run offense through him in ways that make stuff flow. Like we don't need to get into all that, but it's like, there's never any pecking order established. And it just, it feels very, the best word I can say twofold is purgatorial and tentative, unless they're going to package to this to me and the rest of us at media day, like, Hey, we figured this out and be excited that we're retaining the same core. Like, it's just getting a little bit, like you said, it's getting somewhat frustrating. And it's in most of the conversations and the ongoing, like, and this isn't their fault, but the ongoing debates on Twitter about how to use these two bigs and what role both of them should have and whether one of them is a stat pattern and whether one of them is this, that, or the other, like it's just becoming nails on a chalkboard to me. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It feels like, you know, playing Django with roster construction. Um, I'm just not really uh, like if you can't sell yourself, on on the vision of this roster then how are you supposed to sell it to the fan base or or the people you know trying to grade the team you know that's i i think we're definitely at the same spot with that and um hopefully we get some more answers to this uh soon uh because i personally like i think we're both in the same boat like i would just prefer a a more clear uh definitive answer slash direction however you want to put it before the season starts um but it ultimately does not seem like that's going to happen um, so we will clearly have a lot to be talking about and, and viewing with this, but you never know anything could happen. Um, there is always the possibility of something happened late August, early September that we don't really see coming. Uh, Kevin Pritchard has to his credit done a very good job of finding ways to tweak the roster. Um, although I think like we're both saying, this is not just the tweak needed. It feels like more than that, but, um, we'll see. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to hit on before we get out of here? I think that that just about wraps us up for us. Yeah. And you made a good point. I just want to add on there that like, and that's in part why I don't want to, you know, be like automatically they should have traded X big today because again, you and I don't know what the offers were, but beyond that, it makes me want to be tentative because they have been very good with their timing of trades. So it's possible that they might think that, you know, we have intel that like this player might become available just like, you know, last year. It didn't seem like in the offseason that they would have been able to get Karis Levert for Victor Oladipo, but then Victor did come, build his value back up a bit. James Harden forced 
the hand with Brooklyn and, and Houston, and then that deal becomes available. So um, just going to have to trust in that timing there. But in the meantime, I just, I, I kind of wish that like there was just a little bit more, uh, you know, we're bringing back this core and we're going to be excited about it, but yeah, I, I guess that's where I'm at. Just going to have to trust the timing, I suppose. Yeah. Sometimes fake optimism is better than, uh, than, than realism, uh, in the way that you're putting it out, but you know, just depends. Well, Caitlin, this has been uh, this has been fun. I always enjoy getting to catch up. Uh, I'm very excited for some outshine updates. I'm hoping that we have them before the next time we pod. If anything, I'll get a very excited email from you, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, do you have anything exciting in the works or anything that you want people to know about before we get out of here? No, I, I've been kind of just re-watching things and kind of trying to see where the rest of these roster moves are going to play out because it makes, and that's another element of this, it makes writing about the team hard when you don't know which path they're going to go in. So yeah, as Rick Carlisle continues to consider how the pieces are going to work, I kind of have to wait for what he decides is the best path so that I can write about that vision because like, I don't really like writing about a million different scenarios. So yeah, take yeah a, little bit of a, a little bit of a breather here until we get closer to uh, preseason and training camp and, I'll probably maybe have some stuff on some of the stuff I saw in summer league, like what I did with higher in the gaps, because that's, you know, that's more of my wheelhouse. I enjoy when I just get to write about things that I see on the court and I'd like to get back to that. Well, I'm excited for that. I'm sure it'll be a blast. I'm excited to read anything you put out to everyone listening. Uh, of course, go read Caitlin's work, follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. If you don't already follow me on Twitter at M Schindler NBA. And most importantly, just have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening.